right, thanks for hanging around. We got another big hour right straight ahead, so you'll be rewarded for your good decision by a cranked up show for the second hour. We got a lot to talk about in this hour, so please stay with us. This is Tony Beam, in case you missed all that introductory stuff in the first hour. Um, all right, there's a Supreme Court case that not a lot of people are talking about, but the interest in it is beginning to rise because I'm starting to see more and more editorial pieces like this. Why Gonzalez versus Google matters. And I want to go through this story from National Review because it's uh, by Will Duffield, and he's done a good bit of background work on exactly what Gonzalez versus Google is and why the Supreme Court's going to take it up to start with and what could be the result. Uh, Given that YouTube users alone upload more than 70 years of video to the platform every day, it's impossible to manually sort through content posted online across billions of websites. Now see if you can see if you can wrap your head around that for a second. You know, we're dealing in numbers here that kind of get lost. Billions of websites, 70 years of video per day. Most of those are in 30-second increments. Maybe a minute, minute and a half, maybe two minutes. I, but but they're, I, I wonder what the average length of a video on YouTube actually is. I think it would be interesting to find that out, to figure out how many videos we're talking about when we're talking about 70 years worth uploaded every single day. While the early Internet could be organized and moderated by forum administrators, algorithms keep the present Internet humming along. So it's impossible for there to be people that are actually monitoring all of this. Billions of websites uh, around and, and hours and hours and hours and hours, actually days and years of material going up every day. It's just impossible for a human being to say grace over that or to even pretend that they could control that kind of content. So the Internet relies on algorithms to push things to the top when you're searching. It, it, it compiles information just like, for example, Spotify. I use Spotify for all of my music. And Spotify knows, for example, that I like classical music. So it puts together, like, you know, some greatest hits of Mozart, Beethoven, Handel, Bach. Uh, Spotify knows that I like 70s music. So I'll open up Spotify, and lo and behold, there's a greatest hits of the 70s list compiled for me. All I have to do is hit a button. It pushes content to me based on decisions that I've made. Okay, Gary's got some information here. Average video is 11.7 minutes. That's according to Google search, I'm sure. So 11.7 minutes and there's 70 years of video uploaded every single day. That's unbelievable. So in so the algorithms are what drive content. It's what drives information to the surface when you do a search. In Gonzalez versus Google, the court will decide if Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act protects using algorithms to recommend speech. Since 1996, Section 230 has blocked lawsuits that treat websites as pl- or, or platforms as the publisher or speaker of content submitted by the u- users. Now, see, here's the problem. 
if if they're going to be a platform, then the platform has to allow speech based based on some kind of general rules. But there, most of these websites are making decisions about content that make them more of an editorial board and less of a publisher. They're making decisions about what you're going to be, going to be allowed to hear and see. They're making decisions about what qualifies as misinformation, disinformation, and true information. And they're, they're doing this every day. And so the argument is that because these Internet platforms have become editors, not just publishers, then that should negate part of the 230, Section 230, that blocks lawsuits. Gonzalez plaintiffs are relatives of victims of the 2015 ISIS Backclan terror attack. They allege that YouTube's recommendation of ISIS content makes it a developer or a co-creator of the recommended content beyond Section 230's protection. They argue this makes Google liable for the harm their loved ones suffered. The plaintiffs are attempting to to distinguish Google's protected display of speech from algorithmic recommendation, but the act of organizing speech is inextricably uh, from publishing. In other words, the algorithm determines the publishing and what gets pushed to the surface. A newspaper must decide which stories to put on the front page, which to put on the last page. Holding the newspaper liable for a story's placement would erect a roadblock to its publication in the same way legal liability for the paper's content does. Given the infinitude of content uploaded every day across nearly 2 billion websites, the mere act of displaying any particular piece of content is to make a recommendation. It has to be making a recommendation. It just depends on who makes it. Is there a person looking at this content, making a judgment call? No. There are algorithms that collect data and push information based on things that you've done in the past. In its 2019 Force versus Facebook ruling, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit held that Section 230 protects Facebook friend suggestions. The court observed that algorithms take the information provided by Facebook users and match it to other users based on objective factors applicable to any content, whether it concerns soccer, Picasso, or plumbers. So whether it's YouTube video recommendations, Facebook friend suggestions, Tinder swipe cues, Reddit um, weightings, or tweets displayed in a Twitter feed, the modern Internet rule uh, relies on algorithms to determine who sees what. Relying on a myriad of signals, these algorithms respond to our preferences, showing us more of what we or those like us enjoy. But if the plaintiff's arguments are accepted, Let's just imagine they win this case before the Supreme Court, and they're successful in suing uh, Google and YouTube over the fact that they're recruiting terrorists and encouraging, by putting these messages up there, allowing them to be posted, they're encouraging terrorists to take action against innocent people. That's that's the lawsuit. Um, And if if that's accepted... And platforms are made liable for algorithmic recommendations. Another concern will be injected into the mix. Risk-averse platform lawyers and the most litigious members of our society will suddenly have a day, um, a say in previously personalized algorithms. 
Section 230's value to free speech is a product of its procedural protections. Creating an exemption to Section 230 for algorithmic recommendations would ultimately benefit large incumbent firms. Even if platforms could eventually succeed on the merits, there's no evidence any of the BackClan attackers were radicalized by YouTube videos. Taking every such case to trial would be financially crippling for growing platforms. So here's the question. Do we want a social media and video atmosphere where free speech reigns supreme? And the algorithms, the things that we choose, compound and build until we have the websites, these, these social media websites, the video websites, they begin to push content to us that they believe we like based on the algorithms, based on our previous choices. Is that okay? Or is that promoting violence by allowing people who are motivated by jihad or motivated by radical statements from radical Muslims, it, is that opening the door and encouraging them to take action against innocent people? That's the question. And the Supreme Court's going to decide this. Uh, and that's going to be very interesting. Now, the writer of this article, Will Duffield, Here's the last paragraph. He says, hopefully, the Supreme Court will avoid disturbing settled precedent in a misguided effort to clean up the Internet. If changes are made to Section 230, they should come from Congress, not the courts. Now, I agree with that. And I think there need to be changes to Section 230. But we shouldn't rely on the courts to do this because if, if Section 230 is shaped by the courts, then it's, it's not going to be consistent. You're going to have some cases that push Section 230 in one direction and other cases that push it in another direction. And Congress needs to step in and make changes so that the Internet that we have still supports free speech but doesn't promote irresponsible speech. And there's a difference between that. Look, free speech is not is not just anything anybody wants to say. There has to be some measure of accountability for what we say. Yeah, you can say anything you want to, but the consequences that come with what's said have to follow. And if there are no consequences for what we say when we say irresponsible things, then the Internet ends up getting out of hand. Holding platforms liable for algorithmic recommendations would break the tools Americans use to organize and access information online. Yeah, it would be that would be a major ruling. I mean, I I I wonder. I would think that the Supreme Court justices understand that if they were to rule in favor of this family and allow Google and YouTube to successfully be sued because the algorithms that were pushing violent content to these jihadists had something to do with their daughter's death. That'd be a major blow. And that would change the way the internet works for everybody. As you know, you probably already heard because we've been talking about it just about every day, but his radio talk, 919-897, is coming to an end on March 31st. Gary Miller is retiring. And with his retirement, there's going to be a format change for his radio talk. It's no longer going to be a talk format. There'll be some kind of music. I uh, don't know exactly which yet, but uh, as, as that unfolds, if it does before we 
conclude our time, we'll we'll tell you about it. Now, um, I can't do anything about all the other programs that you listen to here, but I can do something about this program, and I'm in the process of doing it. Uh, I packed up all the equipment that I bought and sent it back yesterday because I realized that it was not the the right stuff. So I've got the right stuff on the way on the way to the house now. And um, as soon as I get all that set up, uh, we're working on a new website that's going to be very functional. You're going to be able to find uh, things that I write as well as you'll be able to stream this program. That's the most important thing. Uh, the website is going to allow you to listen from 7.30 to 8.30 live. Now, all of you folks on Facebook Live uh, will continue to do Facebook Live uh, from 7.30 to 8.30. Um, and we're also going to be, I've, I've talked to them about a YouTube channel, but I think I'm going to switch over to Rumble and not even start with YouTube because I guarantee you I would be kicked off of YouTube in short order. So um, we may just go to Rumble where they actually appreciate and respect free speech. But anyway, it'll be available um, on several social media platforms. It'll also be a podcast. The name of the podcast, the new name of the show, is going to be Truth and Politics and Culture with Dr. Tony Beam. And I'm changing the name because essentially that's what we do here. We, I try to tell you the truth about what's happening in the political world. And, of course, politics affects, affects culture. Culture affects politics. And so we, we put all this together and we look at it from the, from the platform that absolute truth exists because we believe in God's Word and we believe that it is absolutely true. It forms the morals and the standards by which we live. So that's what the show is going to be like. And you'll be able to listen to it on the website, streaming live. And if you're accustomed to listening to it in your car, you can listen to it on the website, on your smartphone or your tablet, and then usually through Bluetooth, or maybe you might have to plug it in, but in older cars, but most of the newer cars, you just Bluetooth your phone right through the radio, and you can listen like you were listening to the radio show, just like you're doing right now if you're driving. So um, just giving you that information, a little bit of a different program, but I'm trying to make it more user-friendly for the podcast world. And I'm going to try to uh, add some other things. I may do an additional podcast since I'm going to have all the equipment. I may once or twice a week add a podcast that deals with a theological topic. And we kind of go through it from top to bottom. So in any event, um, I hope you'll stay with the program after March 31st. I've got a story here that I think really points out the fallacy that exist in our political system today in that our system tends to treat people like objects and it chews them up and spits them out based on the political views that they hold or based on their value to hold a seat for a particular period of time. And what I'm talking about now is Senator John Fetterman. As you know, Fetterman had a stroke. He had a, a, a major stroke while he was running for the United States Senate in Pennsylvania. And because Republicans ran such a terrible candidate against him, he was able to win election in, a, in an election, quite frankly, that he should have lost 
and I'm going to go a step further in an election where those that care about him, his family, his loved ones, those around him that are closest to him, should have counseled him to get out of the race and take care of his health. Because, sure enough, he's come to Washington. He's separated from his support group, that is, those that love him and care about him. Uh, He's in Washington trying to serve in the Senate, and the pressure of just serving in the Senate has has proven to be too much. So he checked himself into the Walter Reed National Military Center to receive treatment for clinical depression. According to this article by Noah Rothman over at National Review, it's a condition which Fetterman has suffered off and on throughout his life, and that's according also to his chief of staff, Adam Adam Gentleson. The affliction has, however, become more acute with the rigors of Fetterman's new job, as the Atlantic's Jennifer Sr. wrote in a profile of the senator published auspiciously enough within 24 hours of his hospitalization. So, you know, anybody could see this coming. He's not well. He was not well on the campaign trail. His debate that he had against Dr. Oz um, was terrible. I mean, he he slurred his sentences. He answered the the questions and some of the questions in a wrong way, not based on what the question was. The in other words, the answer didn't have much relationship to the question. Asphasia is something that happens to stroke victims that they can't process language. They can hear the words, they can think the words in their head, but they can't bring all of that together. I mean, it's a complicated process for the brain to be able to process information, put thoughts together, and then allow you to coherently speak. And when you have a major stroke, all of that gets affected, and it's effective negatively. That's what's happened to John Fetterman, and yet because that seat has got to be held by a Democrat that's so important politically for him to be there And by the way, if he were to step down, the governor of Pennsylvania is a Democrat and the governor would appoint someone who would be a Democrat to take Fetterman's place. But the downside is they can only serve for two years. Pennsylvania law says they get to serve for the next till the next election. That would be 2024. So in 2024, both of Pennsylvania Senate seats would be up for reelection. And the, the Democrats don't want that. They want that seat for six years. And so they propped Fetterman up, and he's suffering because of it now. Here's a quote. Fetterman was continuously, relentlessly obligated to perform a certain role, that of a competent, confident politician. This is, his, uh, this is Fetterman's chief of staff writing, He says, much like any other elected official, Fetterman was compelled to play the accessible, obliging politician, and that onerous burden has only become more unendurable in the upper chamber of Congress. As a senator, you can never not be on, Senior continued. The the determination to which the Atlantic's readers are led is that this torment has been done to John Fetterman. And I believe it has been done. I I mean, 
not done to him in the sense that somebody forced him to do it, but done to him in the sense that his family didn't keep him from doing it. I, I don't think they forced him, but I don't think they performed the rescue operation that needed to be performed when he had a major stroke and needed time to recover. The most important thing should have been his health. It should be now. Senior writes, Fetterman has basically been forced to contend with the effects of severe brain trauma while working an absurdly demanding job in one of the most polarized and toxic political climates the country has ever known. Yeah, and he signed up for that. Nobody put a gun to the man's head and said, you've got to go run for the Senate, and if you have a stroke, too bad, because we've got to keep the seat. So it makes it sound like it's the environment. It makes it sound like the job itself is to blame. No, here's who's to blame. The people in Fetterman's life who should have loved him enough to be honest with him, get him out of that race, knowing that the stroke was going to affect him in such a way that he would not be able to handle these responsibilities. I mean, this, is, this shouldn't have been a surprise, and it's not a surprise. Being a senator on a national stage, yes, in a toxic political environment, but that's, that's as if, if there was any other kind of environment. Even if the political environment wasn't toxic, the day-to-day -day demands of a United States senator cannot be fulfilled with somebody who is as incapacitated as Fetterman, and that's not an insult to him. It's not an insult to people who struggle after a stroke. It is a statement of fact that he needs time for his brain to recover. He needs an environment where he's being encouraged and where he builds his strength over time. He never should have been pushed into this environment to, stop with, to start with. For all the due and deserved sympathy the senator and his family are owed, Pennsylvania's voters have earned a measure of pity. They were deprived of the opportunity to properly evaluate Fetterman as a candidate and not just in regards to this apparently lifelong affliction. See, he's, he had a lot of depression problems before he had the stroke. He was struggling with clinical depression. The stroke only exacerbated those symptoms. And yet, on the campaign trail, what were we told? Oh, he's fine. He's getting better. He's getting better Every day, his communication skills are improving. He's, he's going to be able to, to do this. Once he's elected to office, once the election is over, he's going to be just fine. All of that was untrue. It was a smokescreen. They could have run another candidate. My question is, who demanded that it be Fetterman at the detriment of his own health? Folks, we need... Part of the Christian worldview here, a big part of it, is that we care about each other, and we care about people more than we care about things. We care about people more than we care about position or politics or anything else. John Fetterman was made in the image of God, and he deserves an opportunity to be cared for to be able to get back to full strength as much as possible after the effects of a devastating stroke. He shouldn't have been pushed into taking this Senate seat. He should have recused himself. He should have stepped out of the, uh, the election and allowed somebody else to run against Oz. All right, have you ever seen people hunt and peck? 
type. I mean, like really fast. I was fascinated. I was um, the just I won't name names, but I was in a deacon's meeting, and the guy who was taking notes was sitting right next to me. I mean, he was flying on that keyboard, but it was it was not the way that I put my hands on a keyboard. It was just it was like two fingers, two or three. Actually, he was using more than two fingers. Um, I, I don't know what the method was. It's something he had developed, but it fascinates me when people just make up a way to type, and they can do pretty well. I mean, it's obviously he's obviously he's been doing this for a while. All right. Um, this story is probably not going to make your day, but it's something that you need to know about. We we have a lot of focus on the southern border, and we should, because we have a porous southern border. It's wide open. People are coming across in um, incredibly uh, high numbers. I mean, record numbers every day. And it just gets worse. Nothing's being done to make it better. There's no plan. The administration wants this. That They'll tell you that the border is secure with a straight face. And now, I think people are starting to chuckle about that when somebody says, well, the border is secure, when it's so obvious that it's the furthest thing from secure. It's wide open. To say it's a sieve would be an insult to sieves because it there's no sieve. It's just a wide open space with people crossing willy-nilly at will. Same thing is happening now on the northern border. And there's not very many people paying attention to this. America's southern border, southern border is not only is not the only one experiencing a dramatic increase in the number of illegal migrants attempting to cross into the country. This is according to Virginia Allen at the Daily Signal. Customs and Border Protection reports record numbers of encounters with illegal migrants at America's northern border with Canada. While the southern border garners most of the attention, both of America's borders are wide open because of the failed policies of the Biden administration. You know, I, I, I want to correct that. A failed policy is a policy that you intend to do one thing and it doesn't do that one thing. It does the opposite. The Biden administration policy is succeeding because their policy is an open border. So let's stop calling it a failed policy. People get confused by that. They think, well, you know, the Biden administration is just a failure. No, the Biden administration is succeeding at a plan that progressives have had in place for a long time, and that's to have open borders with little to no restraints. And look, you know how I feel about this. I mean, I've, I've aired this on this program many times before. People crossing the border, legal or illegal, are made in the image of God. Christians have a responsibility to care for their needs, to try to help them to obey the law, but at the same time be compassionate about the reason that they cross. We, we need a reasonable policy for immigration. We don't have one. It's just a come one, come all and whoever can get across. Some are being sent back, but most are being processed and released into the country and never heard from again. And the same thing's happening on the northern border. So far in fiscal year 2023 that began October 1st, some 55,736 migrants have been encountered at the northern border, nearly as many as were encountered in 2020 and 2021 combined. So we've got 
double the amount of immigrants coming across the northern border now than we had in 2020 and 2021. If the trend continues, the northern border border will experience a record number of encounters this year. In fiscal 2022, CB, uh, CBP, uh, the Canadian Border Patrol, reported 109,535 encounters at the northern border. And we're going to break that record. Easy. Because why? Because everybody knows that the Biden administration is has a policy that's succeeding at the border. And the policy is to open up the door and let as many people in as possible. And so they're not failing at that policy. They're actually doing quite well. Quote, this administration is setting all the wrong records and exposing American communities to potential national, national security threats because of, its, because of its refusal to defend the homeland. Now, this is according to... Let me back up here and see if I can find his name. Robert Law, who's director of the Center for Homeland Security and Immigration with the America First Policy Institute. Due to the surge of, of migrants at the southern border, some Border Patrol agents have been moved from the northern border to help in sectors along Americans' border with Mexico. Currently, U.S. Border Patrol has approximately 29 agents all volunteers supporting southwest border operations from northern border sectors. In 2022, at the peak of deployments, 464 agents were deployed from the northern, uh, from the northern border sectors. America's northern border is comprised of eight sectors. The Swanton sector encompasses about 24,000 square miles in Vermont, New York, and New Hampshire. On Monday, the Swanton sector announced it experienced a record 367 apprehensions and encounters in January, more than the combined total of every January for the previous 12 years. Folks, we, we have no border policy. Well, we, let me back up. In keeping with what I said earlier, we have a border policy. It's a disaster because the border policy is everybody that comes to the border is going to get in. And as long as people know that, they're going to continue to come. People want to come to America. They want to be in this country. But we have to have an orderly process. We can't have everybody come to America. We've got to have some rhyme or reason and this administration is not going to do that because they see these people as potential potential progressive voters in the future, and they're trying to build a voter base that would keep conservatives from, from winning any election going forward. They're trying to nullify conservative majorities in states like Texas and Arizona, Florida, and they're moving immigrants around the country to affect states like Ohio, Pennsylvania, states that are swing states, North Carolina, even Florida. A uh, little bit of information here about an event coming up at uh, the Mill Church over in Spartanburg, and this is a Southern Baptist Convention event. It's Impact 2023. I'm trying to get back to the main screen here. Well, I just lost it. See if I can bring it back up right quick. Yep, there we go. Um, the main speakers for Impact 2023, it's going to be this Thursday, 
um, over at the Mill in Spartanburg. It's a day-long conference. Uh, Matt Carter is the vice president of SIN Network from NAM. He's going to be speaking. Jeff Strucker is assistant professor of Christian leadership at Southeastern Seminary. And Michael Catt is the former pastor of Sherwood Baptist Church. He's now the executive producer of Sherwood Sherwood Picture Films. You may remember that a lot of these Christian films uh, got started down in that church, and they he's now uh, doing films full-time because it's become an incredible ministry. Aaron Williams is the worship leader-songwriter for the Worship Initiative. So uh, the network breakout list is too long for me to even begin to go in. I mean, there's just a ton of subjects here um, for success in ministry, reaching next generation uh, people. Um, We've got folks from North Greenville that are going to be involved in these breakout sessions. Dr. Nathan Finn, who's our provost, um, and several others here that are going to be involved. So in any event, uh, you you don't want to miss this if you if you if you're in ministry and you're looking for a great event, you can go to the South Carolina Baptist Convention website, and the way you do that is South Carolina South it's uh, scbaptist.org, and the first thing you'll see on the website when you go there scbaptist.org, you can click to register for the conference, and I think there's still tickets available this Thursday at the mill over in Spartanburg. And they've got, they have a pre-session that's going to take place Wednesday night, give you an opportunity to look over a lot of the things going on at the mill um, and enjoy some barbecue and to network with other pastors. Uh, That's Wednesday night, six to eight. Now I'll be, I can't be there because I'll be at Five Forks Baptist Church doing our midweek service. But if you have opportunity to do that, check it out at scbaptist.org. All right, uh, final story for today. This is coming from the Daily Wire. January 6th panel chairman issues warning over Tucker Carlson getting tapes. I don't know if you've heard about this, but the chairman of the now-defunct January 6th committee warned of the potential security risk of U.S. Capitol security footage being released to the media. This is Bernie Thompson, Representative Bernie Thompson, He issued a statement hours after Axios broke the news that House Speaker Kevin McCarthy gave Fox News host Tucker Carlson access to, are you ready, 41,000 hours of Capitol surveillance footage from the January 6, 2021 Capitol event. The day a crowd of people entered the U.S. Capitol disrupting lawmakers who were meeting to certify President Joe Biden's 2020 election. When the select committee obtained access to U.S. Capitol Police video footage, it was treated with great sensitivity given concerns about the security of lawmakers, staff, and the Capitol complex, Thompson said. Oh, come on. I mean, people have been all through the United States Capitol. What's on these videos that they're worried about being released to the public? Look, these, th- these videos should be released. They've been in the hands of partisans, progressive partisans, who've only told you one side of the story about what happened on January 6th. And they've used videos to back up their version of the story. 
So why would you not want all of this video to be available so people can see for themselves rather than just having the story told to them by people who have an agenda? And I know you may be saying, well, you think Tucker Carlson's not going to have an agenda? You think Tucker Carlson? Look, all 41,000 hours are going to be out there. Now, the producers of Tucker Carlson's show are going through that video now, and he's going to start, he'll start airing clips, and then you can decide whether he's got his thumb on the scale or not. But we deserve to know everything that happened that day. That January 6th is being used as a cudgel every day to beat conservatives into submission, to characterize MAGA Republicans, people who support Donald Trump, and even people who don't but are very conservative. It's being used to characterize them as just being crazy or worse. They're radicals, revolutionaries, and that's just not the case. And I, we just, we need to be able to see the, the exactly what happened on January 6th instead of having it only be in the possession of progressives who are going to give you the part of the story that benefits their side of the ledger. Quote, access was limited to members and a small handful of investigators and senior staff and the public use of any footage was coordinated in advance with Capitol Police. It's hard to overstate the potential security risk if this material were to be used irresponsibly. Now, of course, what you're supposed to get from this is that if Tucker Carlson has it and it's Fox News, it's going to be irresponsibly used. Irresponsible from a progressive standpoint means you get to see the whole truth. It's irresponsible to let people decide for themselves. You have to tell them what they're supposed to think about something. That's the way progressives treat everybody, not just conservatives, but it's, it's what they want you to believe. We're the government. We know what's best for you. We'll watch this video for you, and we'll tell you what you need to know. And the rest of it, you just need to ignore. Walk away. There's nothing to see here. Well, there's a lot to see there. Forty-one thousand hours. Kevin McCarthy has not yet commented publicly on the disclosure to Carlson, but the speaker did say last month he was looking to release the tapes because of the politicalization he believed had been fostered by former Speaker Nancy Pelosi and the January 6th committee. Well, of course, the whole thing was just political show. We talked about it pretty regularly here on the program and talked about the fact that there was nothing bipartisan about it. There was nothing, you know, you didn't have a situation where you had people asking questions of witnesses that were, you know, anything but affirming. I mean, when the, when the committee brought these witnesses up and began to ask them questions, it was simply to get them to say what the committee wanted them to say. It wasn't to get them to tell the truth about what happened. It was scripted, and that's not the way you conduct an investigation. The people in this country have a right to know. The people who have been charged with a crime, the people who were sentenced to jail, they deserve to have access to all this video. There might be something exculpatory on there. I mean, we don't know. The January 6th committee did air some clips of security footage during its summer hearings last year, including one showing Senator Josh Hawley, a Republican, running through a Capitol hallway.
Well, of course. It was it was a Republican. It was Josh Hawley. He's a thorn in the side of progressives in the United States Senate. Why do you think they would not do this? Um, <laughs> Carlson told Axios he believes that there was never any legitimate reason for the footage to remain secret. Absolutely true. Look, I'm I'm not a a huge Tucker Carlson fan. I I think he exaggerates things some sometimes. Um, I, I I think you know you come away from watching his show, and the only thing you get is just a lot of anger most of the time. But he certainly deserves to have this video footage. If if Speaker McCarthy thinks that he's the right person, then let him take the footage. Go through it and air as much of it as he can. I hope they'll air it for months. If it And it would take that long to get through an, a catalog that size. And I'm sure that there's video footage in there that's just footage of a empty hallway, maybe. I mean, there's stuff that has no relevance. But you know that in 41 hours of 41,000 hours of video, there's going to be things that are relevant that are going to tell a much clearer story about what actually happened on January 6th. And I still don't think we've, we've, we've ever gotten the whole story. We've only had one side. It's time for the other side to have an opportunity to respond. All right, that's all the time that we've got for today. We're going to wrap up uh, the program. Just a quick reminder that His Radio Talk 91.9 and 89.7 is going to change formats coming up on March 31st. If you tune in, March 31st is a Friday. We'll go home on that Friday after the program. And then on Monday, uh, April what 1st, 2nd, 3rd, uh, if you tune in, it's not going to be the same thing that you've been accustomed to hearing. It's not going to be his radio talk. It's going to be some type of music format. But if you tune in to my website that is being put together right now, and I'll have the web address for you soon, uh, I'll be, begin to tell you where you can listen. You'll be able to stream this program from 7.30 to 8.30. It's going to have a new name. It's going to be Truth and Politics and Culture with Dr. Tony Beam. There'll be a corresponding podcast. There's going to be some writing. I'm going to do some writing, put it up on the website. Eventually, we're going to be bringing in Hannah and Corey and probably Dr. Jackson. We're going to try to create space. It's not going to happen in the beginning because it's going to be enough just to get the website started that I can have. And then we'll begin to do some cross-promotion and try to make it a website where you can go and get a lot of good conservative news because we just – we don't have anything like that um, that's local. All right. I hope you have a great day. Um, I'll be heading to Columbia today, and I'll, God willing, I'll be back and be here in the morning at 7 o'clock. I hope you'll join me.